Thank you so much. Good morning. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, an opportunity to be together with friends, loved ones, family, the opportunity to give thanks to God for what he's been doing in your life, in your your relationships over the course of these months, even the unexpecteds of this past year. The opportunities to give God thanks is central to, to this time of year. Today we're completing our series in John 14 through 17. It's been known by some as the the farewell discourse, to others as the upper room discourse of our Lord. Chapters 14 through 17 are powerful expressions of the way in which Jesus Christ has left a legacy of teaching for his disciples before he went to the cross to die for our sins. And today what we're doing is we are looking at verse 20 down through verse 26. Now, this is a sacred moment. The disciples, as well as you and I, are being given opportunity to listen in to an intense, gracious, instructional prayer in which Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, is praying to God the Father, the first member of the Trinity. We're eavesdropping. And as we're listening in, we're overwhelmed with this relationship within the Godhead, the unity that's here, and the lessons that can be applied to each and every one of our lives. So as we listen in, ponder what John's written, beginning in verse 20 down through verse 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. See my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. And I have revealed you to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be theirs and I myself may be in them. These are rich, they're profound words, and these seven verses give us a better understanding still of the powerful relationship that Christ has to the Father. So often we're so concerned with the relationship that we have to Christ that sometimes we overlook the relationship that Christ has to the Father. But all this needs to be understood and and mingled in together 
to have a perspective that God would have us have regarding our relationship to him through Christ. So with that in mind, let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, fathers, we're coming into your presence. We're so thankful for this weekend of giving thanks. It disciplines us to stop, pause, consider what matters most, consider who matters most. To give thanks to you for who you are, to give thanks to you for what you've done for who you are, all wise, all just, all gracious, for what you've done. Not only the creation of this world, but the new creation found in a relationship with you through Jesus Christ when we come to that saving faith. So Father, we are living in the glow of thanksgiving as we've gathered together again now to worship you this morning. You know the needs of each one here. You know the struggles we face. You know the sort of issues that are on our minds where we find ourselves suspended between Thanksgiving and Christmas. There may be some intense moments coming our way, critical decisions we may be confronting in relationships that perhaps require healing. And you know them all. You know what keeps us awake at night. So, Father, what I'm praying now is that as we open up your word, you open up our hearts. Praying that our hearts are again warmed by your grace. Our minds are informed by your truth. Because once again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the powerful teachings and instructions on prayer that I've come across, One of the most significant statements that seems so embedded in my mind comes from the pen of John Bunyan. Bunyan wrote, You can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Let me say it again. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. In this masterful discourse of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he is now wedded together teaching in chapters 14, 15, and 16 with prayer in chapter 17, now providing the early church and the apostles in particular that model of teaching and prayer as core values for the sake of the expansion of the gospel ministry. 
So now, Jesus Christ has, as second member of the Trinity, provided us a tremendous understanding of the relationship he has to the first member of the Trinity. And as he does so, he allows for us to peer into what I will call the three concentric circles of this prayer found in this 17th chapter. The innermost circle, verses 1 down through verse 5, is Jesus Christ praying for himself. The second intermediate circle, in verse 6 down through verse 19, is Jesus Christ praying for his apostles. In verse 20 down through verse 26, which we are exploring this morning, Jesus Christ prays for his church, for all who are part of his family, you see. Each circle is tied together by a sense of giving that you will find in these verses. But out of this third concentric circle, what God will offer us through the prayer of Jesus Christ are three essentials to this prayer that I think have tremendous bearing upon the way in which we live for God and with one another. The first essential is found in verse 20 down through verse 23. It's this. Notice with me first the unity, the unity Christ desires. Now, you are going to see a tremendous emphasis upon oneness, upon unity, In verse 21, where it will be stated, verse 22 a second time where it's emphasized, and verse 23 where it's repeated. But we're going to inch into this slowly as we move into this third circle, and our Lord begins, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now you're saying, Gary, you've got to help me here with the them and and the those that are found here in verse 20. Who's them? Who's those? Them refers to the apostles that he has just completed his prayer for in verse 6 down through verse 19. My prayer is not for them, parenthesis, the apostles, alone. I pray also for those, the believing family through successive generations, who will believe in me through their message. Now you've got the them, and you've got the those, And what we've got to understand as we begin to think through the unity of faith that Christ desired, we've got to first grasp what we will call the nature of our unity. And you will find it in the second part of this 20th verse. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's there? Now you're trying to keep together the them and the those and the there, aren't you? Now the there has got to go back to the them. 
And the them are the apostles. So in other words, what you and I are called to do is to understand that our unity as a congregation is rooted in the teaching of the apostles. In other words, the informing 39 books of the Old Testament, coupled with through the inspiration by the Holy Spirit upon their hearts to pen God's thoughts of the New Testament, you and I then are called to unity, not based upon human opinion, not based upon cultural preference, not based upon ethnic oneness, but based upon the Word of God, believe in me through the message. The Greek word logos here carries with the idea of the Word. So now it's the Word which ties us together, and it's the Word that we follow through each and every aspect of our lives as we seek unity with one another. Now, whenever you're visiting Boston, and I hope you do, you go on to take a historical walk from the Boston Commons. You'll probably start under that great steeple of Park Street Church. Love that church. You're going to walk down, perhaps, past Tremont Temple and come to you're going to come to King's Chapel. Take a right, not a left. Take a right to the Old South Meeting House. Spend some time there. Wander over to Quincy Market. And then perhaps pick up a lunch at Fenyoe Hall. And you're going to say, but Gary, that uh, I, need a, I need a means to find my way around the city. Well, if you look down, what you will find is that there is this red line on the sidewalk. And if you follow that red line, you're going to see just about all the historical sites in the city of Boston. You've got to follow the line. Now what I'm saying here is that when you look at this opening phrase, My prayer is not for them alone, apostles. I pray also for those, speaking of believers here today, who will believe in me through their message. The message is the word. The message is the line. The message is the means by which we are able to get to where we need to be in the course of life as we follow God's word, which is, of course, God's will and God's will for his people in relationship to one another. Now, the nature of our unity is the word, their message. And that is so critically important because it ties together what comes next in verse 21, that all of them may be one. So I am then united to the apostles. You then, if you are a believer, are united to another believer in this congregation, There's this tremendous unity, and what connects us is the line of truth that flows from the apostles as described in this verse, the teaching that's given to us through God's Word. Now, the early church grasped this, didn't they? Because in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, 
You and I are told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. You feel that coming together? And do you see how Jesus taught in John 14 through 16 and then prayed in verse 17 and prayed for their unity? And what's interesting is that in verse 44 of Acts chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything, you see, in common. When we grasp this idea, then, we're beginning to pursue the unity that God has prescribed for you and prescribed for me. And so we can embrace what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, opinion, but as it actually is the Word of God, which is at work in you, who believe. There's the starting point for unity in your family, in this community, in this church. The nature of unity is God's Word. But now notice further with me the source of unity And that's the Godhead. In verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. See the model there? See the example there? You are called, and I am called, to that kind of unity that's being described here in these verses. But then he goes on to say this, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, there's to be this mutual indwelling between the Father and the Son within the Godhead. And likewise, then, there is this mutual indwelling between the church and the Godhead. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, mutual and dwelling, distinct persons, yet complete oneness. The church is in God, and so now we find here mutual indwelling, and the Holy Spirit is in the church. You tie this together, and you realize you and I are called not to uniformity, which is based on externals, but unity which is based upon internals. I enjoyed every second of Thursday night's football game. New England beat the New York Jets. Again, the will of God was at work in our midst. And what struck me this past week is that the New York Jets seem to be having a problem with unity. If you followed all the squabbles and the challenges and the tensions on their team leading up to Thursday night's loss, the hands of God, through the New England Patriots, what you will find is this. They shared the same uniform, 
but they lacked unity. There's a difference between uniformity and unity. A religious organization is not necessarily a church, though it may be listed as such in the yellow pages. What holds them together is not unity by the Spirit, but uniformity based upon the externals of life. But you see, a God-breathed, Christ-centered congregation is not driven by the externals of uniformity, but by the gracious truth of God at work producing true unity. It comes from within and works its way out. And what's true of the church is also to be true of the family, true in a marriage, and true in a community as well. And what believers need to understand is that when we look at the Godhead, there is diversity. There's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, but they are three in one, in, you see. There is mutual indwelling, three persons within one Godhead. Spiritual equality, eternal unity, and yet diversity in the sense that it was the Father who sent the Son into the world. It's the Son who commissioned the Holy Spirit to indwell us while we live in this world. And so we begin to look very carefully then where the dynamic of true unity is found. The source of unity is within the Godhead, the three in one. This gives us a better understanding then of what unity is to be all about because it's not simply one. It's three in one, which becomes the basis then for the unity that the, that the church itself is to understand. So now the nature of unity is the Word of God. You saw that in verse 20. And furthermore, we begin to note that the source of unity is the Godhead, the three in one. And we see that in verse 21. But there's something further here. Not only the nature of unity in 20 and the source of unity in 21, I want you to notice with me the purpose of unity found in verse 21 through 23, I want two verses to appear on the screen. Look at them very carefully. The first one in verse 21, notice how it reads. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The purpose of our unity as a congregation for external purposes is evangelism, so that the world may believe that you, speaking of God the Father, have sent me, speaking of God the Son. And if that's not enough, look at verse 23, which appears next, and ponder the purpose of unity here, to let the world know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me, And if you look at verse 21 and combine it with verse 23, what they find in common is this thread of purpose. And that purpose is unit in the whole idea that because we have mutual indwelling, 
God the Father indwelling God the Son, God's church being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, out of this then is a powerful witness to a fragmented world. Now when you watch what's happening in Egypt, when you watch what's happening in this world, when you ponder what's going on in the United States of America, fascinating phrase, united, then what we've got to understand is that this world is in a process of fragmentation. And one of the most powerful, visible, evangelistic approaches the church can have in a world that seems to be coming apart at the seams is the unity, not the uniformity, but the unity of God's people who despite educational, ethnic, vocational, and income differences find their oneness, you see, in Jesus Christ. I was fascinated by a statement that was made about a particular swimming pool in Monmouth, Illinois, on the bottom of the swimming pool in YMCA, Builders have put this tile emblem, symbolic, spiritual, mental, physical nature of humanity. At the center of the emblems, the Bible. The Bible. And it's opened at John chapter 17, verse 21. There was a boy who couldn't make out the wording. So he swam to the bottom and it read, John 17, 21. He came back up to the surface, and he knew the lifeguard was a believer, and so he made his way to the lifeguard and asked, what does that mean? That they may all be one, said the lifeguard. According to the local newspaper, here was what the boy's response was. You sure have to go through a lot to find that out. There is nothing that tests God's people more than when we go through physical, relational, financial, emotional challenges. Where the world itself would be prone to fragment, the people of Jesus come together in their adult Bible fellowships, in their care groups, through hearing of somebody who's hurting and firing off an email or getting on Facebook or showing up at the hospital. And there's this, there is this powerful impression evangelistically upon the heart of the unbeliever who watches Unity in action. Truth with legs. Moving in where the rest of the world would move apart. Where we demonstrate firsthand what it means to come together. When it seems like people in this world are coming apart at the seams. That's why I love if you were to go to the Evangelical Free Church of America's website and click on distinctives, you would find this phrase regarding the free churches nationwide. In essentials, unity. 
in non-essentials, charity, in all things, Jesus Christ. And when a congregation embraces this as a powerful distinctive of the way they relate to one another, the world takes note, you know. The world takes note. Now you've got the nature of unity, the source of unity, and the purpose of unity. It's the unity that Christ desires in 20 through 23. But there's a second essential that I spot here, these verses. It's found in just one verse, verse 24. It's the future that Christ wills. Or even more particularly, the future that Christ wants. Notice how it reads in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Notice how unique this prayer is. Because what it says here is that Jesus Christ, the fifth time, by the way, fourth out of five times, I should say, in this prayer, speaks of his Father. There is a Father-centeredness to this prayer. It's a, recurring, it's a recurring theme. And when you look very carefully at what it says here, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me. Look very carefully now at the want that's found here. When you look and I look at the want that's found here, what stands out to me is that you and I are most likely to pray something along the lines of, not my will, but yours be done. But you see, the Father's will is the Son's will. And the Son's will is the Father's will. And where there is this coalescing of will, there is this intensity of unity. Now, when you and I coalesce around the will of God, based upon the word of God, we will find the intensification of the unity for the believers with one another because of the mutual indwelling of the one who is the spirit of truth within the believers, you see. And all this begins to work itself out and come together. Father, read on. I want... I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Now, in each of the concentric circles of this prayer, you will find a giving. Two weeks back, in verses 1 through 5, we noted the three aspects of giving. One, the Father gave the Son authority. Number two, the Father gave the Son his people. And number three, the Son gives the Father's people eternal life. You pick it up, and the same giving is found in the second concentric circle in verse 6 down through verse 19, we covered last week. And now here you are in the third concentric circle, and we are eavesdropping. We're listening in. So often we think of Jesus giving us something. 
But in this powerful expression prayerfully of the Son to the Father, he talks about what the Father's giving. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Now, in the coming days, most likely, either you or somebody you know is going to be going to see the Hobbit. And there's a particular scene in the first chapter in which Gandalf is trying to explain to the dwarfs that they should consider being one with Bilbo Baggins because they're not too impressed with this hobbit. And so Gandalf looks at them and says, I have chosen Mr. Baggins, and that ought to be enough for all of you. There's a lot more in him than you can guess. And a deal more than he has any idea of himself. And now this is what God seems to be saying here. And here's Jesus Christ in the intensity of this prayer, lifting these thoughts to the Father. And two distinctives or two burdens, if you will, flaw of verse 24. The first regarding these people for whom Christ dies is this, to be with Christ. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Now what you want to do is to tie that together with how this farewell discourse began in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. It's the witness of heaven he's describing here. And so it's a prepared place for a prepared people. And so now what Jesus Christ is doing is that he is wedding together the promise of John 14, 1 through 6 with the prayer of John chapter 17, verse 24. Oftentimes I'll utilize this in a funeral gathering and try to pull together the promise with regard to being with Christ with the prayer Christ has that we be with Christ. And it blends together. It flows together. And there's the first of two burdens to be with Christ. The second burden here is to see Christ's glory. The second part of verse 24 says, And to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so Christ's glory is tied to the Father's love. 
Christ's glory is His self-revelation. And so the glory is revealed, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. John chapter 1 informs us of this very idea. And so here John continues this flow of glory into John chapter 17, and you and I pick up on it and say not only was He beheld in earthly form, the fullness of His glory will be beheld in heavenly form, this is what's described by theologians as unshielded glory. Unshielded glory. You see Jesus in His entirety. It's because you're with Him if you know Him strikes me because Thomas Paine, who is one of the great intellectuals among the founders of this country, was an infamous unbeliever. He sought to lead people away from the Scriptures. On his deathbed, these words are attributed to him. I would give worlds if I had them that my book, The Age of Reason, had not been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Oh, God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God! Exclamation point. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Question mark. Listen to what comes next. Stay with me. For God's sake. You feel the tension? Here is this one arguing there is no God. And in the very next breath saying, stay with me for God's sake. What's going on? God is impressed within the soul the need for witness with Jesus. There is an aching eternal cavity within the soul of the individual that can only be filled with the glory of the presence of Jesus Christ. Send even a child to stay with me, for it is held to be alone, Payne said. For if ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. Contrast that to the words of Isaac Watts the great evangelical poet who had penned words such as, Oh God, our help in ages past. Whereas he was about to pass away, said, It is a great mercy that I have no matter of fear or dread of death. I could, if God please, lay my head back and die without terror this afternoon. For I will be with Christ. See the contrast? Sense the witness? And notice the future that Christ wills. Father, I want them. To be with Christ. To see Christ's glory. Once we have embraced the second essential of this prayer, we wrap it up now with the third essential coming our way. 
the promise Christ makes. Verses 25 and 26. Righteous Father, fifth time now in this prayer, he uses the word Father. It's very Father-centered. Though the world does not know you, notice how many times the word know appears. Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. Stop right there. What is the purpose behind this promise? Number one, to make his Father known to us. To know the Father through the ministry of the Son. And now you come full circle in these concentric circles because you looked very carefully in a prior week and noticed how this John 17 began. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. And now here's one of the biggest challenges of growing up evangelical. It is possible to know the gospel and not know God. The gospel describes the mission of Christ. The gospel is not God. The danger is to become so tremendously and religiously informed with the gospel that we have subtly substituted, and the gospel becomes God rather than God be God. Eternal life is not knowing the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is that we might know God, you see. And once we put this together, it revolutionizes the way in which we teach our children at home, the way we share with loved ones, We can't settle with simply being gospel-informed people. The question is, do you know God? Personal. Relational. If so, you can embrace the other aspect of this promise that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them, to increase his Father's love in us, is the other aspect to this promise. To make his Father known to us, so that he could increase his Father's love in us, as Christ indwells us. Mutual indwelling. I've always been struck by this powerful statement by Carl Henry. Prayer is one of the means God has etched into the cosmos for the advancement of his purposes. Which takes me back to what Bunyan said. 
You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. After Christ prayed, He went to the cross to die for our sins. And His prayer for us was preparation for His final work for us. Do you know God? Or have you simply settled for knowing the Gospel? Let's stand together. The Gospel is a means. The Gospel is not an end. The Gospel informs us of God. The Gospel challenges us to know God. I pray, Father, in this Thanksgiving weekend that we leave these services today with an incredible sense of thanksgiving for the one who is willing to pray for us and then go and die for us. We've got elastic souls, Father, that were meant for witness with Jesus. So I pray, Father, if there's anyone in these services today that comes perhaps gospel-informed, religiously informed, spiritually informed, that person will now leave knowing God because he or she repents of sin now. Puts faith exclusively in Jesus Christ who prayed for him or her, and then died for him or her. Keep intensifying our unity. Keep expanding our unity. As we go to the various adult Bible fellowships in the next hour, as we, some of us are going to be saying goodbye to loved ones and heading back in various directions. I pray that the unifying work of the Word of God and the grace of God will continue to speak to each and every heart. We'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.